I don't know how you feel about your family. Do you feel like it's dysfunctional or, or what? But dysfunction seems to be kind of the norm today. Dysfunction seems to be kind of part and parcel to just being a part of our world, especially in, in families. You see, dysfunction in, in every facet of life, uh, especially in the family. And we see it because there's this, there's this brokenness that we don't know about. There's a brokenness that is running all the way through our homes, that's running through our lives, that's in every facet, every area, uh, everything that we're a part of. And yet the reality is that we don't really recognize it. We think that we can fix it. We think that we can make it better. But ultimately what we need is we need something new and something different. We need some, another way to get by in our homes, another way to bring about, instead of dysfunction, to bring wholeness. Instead of brokenness, bring wholeness. But this is such a difficult thing to do on our own. Many times we try to do it on our own. We try to make it happen. We try to fix things that are perceived to be broken. And as a result, they end up more broken, either through moral efforts we're trying to be a better person. We're trying to make our kids do what we want them to do. Or we just want to make things better, and so we want to escape. And so pornography or drugs or, or money or work or power or something like that or control, all those things end up in our homes. We're trying to make them better because we're dealing with dysfunction. And there's something about us that, that really realizes that this is not the way that it should be, that our, our homes really should not be broken in these ways and yet we cannot seem to figure out how to make it happen. And so what we end up with is we end up with these homes that continue to be dysfunctional. They continue to, to fall apart. And the reason is, is because we believe that we can control this dysfunctional family and bring it back to a level of wholeness. In our scripture today, we're going to see a picture of an incredibly dysfunctional family. Uh, perhaps like you would not have realized is actually in the scriptures. All throughout the book of Genesis, we've seen dysfunction from the very first family, Adam and Eve, and how they uh, went against God. They tried to be their own God. They tried to do their own thing. They tried to control. They tried to make things different. And as a result, sin came into the world. But God has another word over that. And he talks about how the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this great prophecy that's foretelling of something amazing that's going to happen. And it's in and through this seed, and this seed is a, is a line of offspring. It's a family that stretches throughout the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is not a disconnected book of stories. It is one storyline that talks about God's redemption plan that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And it's fulfilled through this family, through this seed of the woman, through this offspring. And so we've seen as that has gone through one family, or it's actually through the same family, but through one patriarch after another, and now uh, we've gone through Abraham, and Abraham is the offspring, and through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, God tells him. And then he's waiting for his, his child, he's waiting for his seed, he's waiting for this kid that is going to turn into nations, 
And he tries on his own to fix it. He tries to control. But that brings about Ishmael, which brings on a whole other group of problems through this, this child that he has with his wife's handmaiden or slave. But then God finally fulfills his promise and brings about Isaac. And Isaac is the child of promise. And so Isaac goes on, and now he is the new patriarch. He is the one who, uh, through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And all of the promises of Abraham have come to him, and now they're, they're coming through his family. But now he has two children, Jacob and Esau. And so let's pick up the story in chapter, uh, actually last two verses of 26, because I want to pick up the story in context, and I'm going to read through chapter 27 and into the beginning of chapter 28. So here we go. It says this, when Esau was 40 years old, that's one of the two children that Isaac has. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Hittite is another word for Canaanite. The Canaanites are the bad people. The good people are God's people, this family. So Esau runs off and marries these two gals. And they might make life very bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Chapter 27, verse 1 says this. When, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim... So that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca. Mom was listening at the door, all right? This is what moms always do, don't they? They just kind of, they know what's going on. They know what's happening. They're, they're aware of everything in the home. They know when you're lying. They know when uh, you, you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. They can see that look in uh, their husband's eye, but also their kids. And so here's mom. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless, uh, bless you before the, uh, before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you, Rebekah says. Go to the flock. Bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will, feed, uh, will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went. And took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. 
So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you've told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Blasphemy. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's uh, Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered him, I am, the third time here. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See the smell of my son. It is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not right na uh, rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and, and with grain and wine, wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth you shall, be your dwelling, shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob, 
because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill uh, my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you, planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, free, uh, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft? Of you both in one day. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? I'll stop right there. Complete dysfunction. Complete dysfunction. Think about this family for a minute. How, how broken it is. Think about how, how dysfunctional everything that is going on in their life is happening. Think about how Isaac is this, this father who really likes his son Esau. In fact, it says earlier in the book, it says, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There was favoritism from the very beginning. And here's Esau. He's this rough and tumble man. He's kind of a, a, a frat guy. He's a part of a fraternity. He goes away on spring break to like Daytona Beach or something like that. Comes back with two sorority girls. Says, guess what? I married them both, mom and dad. And mom and dad are totally ticked. And they may make life very bitter, both for Isaac and Rebekah. And yet, here's Jacob. And Jacob is this, is this guy who basically sits around and plays video games all day. My apologies to everyone who really loves to do that. But he sits around and plays video games all day. If Isaac and Rebekah had a basement, Jacob was living in it, right? That's, that's where he was. He was in the basement playing video games, had a headset on, talking to other geeks and stuff like that. So, again, my apologies. So, yeah, it's a great way to start a sermon, I, I assure you, insult everybody. But, um, no, so here, so here you have, you have these two dysfunctional guys, but then you've got mom. You've got mom. And what's happened with mom is this, is that as she was uh, pregnant, she had been barren, dealing with infertility. She had been uh, barren, and she could not have children. And then finally, God blesses her. And she ends up conceiving these children, and they're in her stomach, and they're fighting in her womb. And she's like, I just want to die because these kids are already killing me. They're not even out of the womb yet. And God speaks to her. She inquires of the Lord, it says. God speaks to her and says, there's two nations in your belly, in your womb, the older is going to serve the younger and basically gives her this oracle, this prophecy that basically says Esau, the one who comes out first, is not going to be the one who rules. It's going to be Jacob. And as we talked about out of Romans 9, that ultimately we see that this was God's plan, that God had intended to choose Jacob over Esau. 
And Rebecca knows this. And so actually what's also going on is that Isaac knows this as well. There's no way that he doesn't. This is a word from the Lord that came to Rebecca. And so what's happening here is that you have this father who's very passive in the lives of his sons. He's very passive in the, in the lives of his sons. And he doesn't really do much to bring them back to call them to submission, to be a, a great father. Here's Isaac, who is the seed of the woman. He is the offspring, and through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Jesus is coming from him. And here he is as a passive father, which, by the way, men, this is our issue. Our issue is that we tend to be passive. Our issue is that we tend to not speak up. And Isaac is this man who's driven by his appetites. He naturally prefers his older son Esau. He prefers him because he's a man's man. I mean, he was probably a star player on the stickball team or whatever it was. This guy was a hunter. This guy was rough and tumble. Like all of us, I said in a previous sermon, all of us, I think, would have liked to have known Esau. We would have liked to have hung out with him. And this story is absolutely heartbreaking here. But here you have a passive father who is not leading his son toward righteousness, but ultimately his son just goes and does whatever he wants. He goes and he marries these Hittite women. And in fact, Rebecca is so miserable about this that she says, dude, if Jacob marries a Hittite woman, she basically says, I'm going to kill myself. If that, if that happens. She hates these, these gals. They're not a part of this family. And so what is, what is she? Well, she's kind of a jaded mother-in-law a little bit, right? She's, she's got it out for her daughter-in-laws from the same son. She's got it out for them. And so what does she end up doing? She ends up kind of getting in there. And if you look at the story and you think about sweet little old Rebecca, Rebecca is this woman who is actually kind of maneuvering. She's kind of manipulating. And, and more than kind of, she's completely doing those things, I should say. She's in there. She's, she's kind of making things happen. In fact, she knows the oracle that God had given her about her sons. And she says, you know what? God needs some help. Because I know what God said, and so I'm going to help God Get his work done. I know that God wants us to have a great family. I know that God does not want all of this, these riches and all of this inheritance and this blessing to go to this scumbag Esau, son of mine, who married these floozies. And so I got to help God. I got to help God deal with these people. And so she gets in there. There's really three things that I want, want you to see from this passage. The first thing is the ubiquity of sin. Ubiquity means existing everywhere. So, sorry for the big word there. The ubiquity of sin. Secondly, the illusion of control. And thirdly, the relief of redemption. Now, I'm sorry, I've got three points for you today. I'll try to make things more confusing next week. But today, we've got three points. I know I don't normally do that. But the first thing is this, the ubiquity of sin. What do you, what do you see here? A lot of times people look at this passage and they say, who is the good person in this? Who's the good person in the midst of this passage? Who's, who's the person who is without sin? 
Maybe Rebecca is the one who's carrying out the will of the Lord. And, you know, she's kind of she's done some things that were a little bit manipulative. But Rebecca, she, you know, she's got it handled. No, that, Rebecca's not the one. She's the one that's, that's really stirring all this up. Well, then you go, well, maybe Jacob. Jacob is the chosen son. And so he, you know, he really is just following his mom's order. She says, do as I command you right now. And so Jacob's just kind of going along. But that, that doesn't fit either. The truth is this, is that every single one of these people, every single one of these people in this family of four is responsible for the dysfunction that's going on in this home, just like all of our homes. All of us are responsible for the dysfunction that's going on in our home. All of these, uh, these men and this woman, all of them take, have responsibility. And what is going on? Where, where is their sin coming from? Well, as I said, Jacob is controlled by his appetites. It says a couple of times, he loves to eat of the game that Esau brings. And no doubt what it led him to was this. I like this guy. I like this kid. He brings me amazing meat. I, and I don't know what Esau had. Did he have a Traeger? Did he have some type of a smoker? Was he like, he'd like go kill something and be like, Dad, I got you a brisket right now. Here you go. I would love that son too. I would totally resist God and, and, and do that. But uh, it's a way to my heart. I'm sorry. But no, he, he has this problem. He has this issue. He's controlled by his appetites. Where is Isaac's sin? He's controlled by his appetites. The biggest piece of this is that here he is as a patriarch he knows what God has said. He knows that Esau is not the chosen one, and yet he's still going to bless him. He's still going to bless him. He's still going to bless this kid who really should not have any blessing at all. He fails to lead his household well. He has sin, the ubiquity of sin. It's everywhere. Sin is in every one of these people. Rebecca, what's her deal? Well, Rebecca's controlled by fear. She's controlled by fear that what happens if Esau gets the blessing? God's will is going to be thwarted, I would imagine she is thinking to herself. God's will is going to be thwarted because here this guy is, who's such a punk. He married these two girls. I don't want them having all of these riches. It'd be like somebody winning the lottery who never should have won the lottery. He's going to destroy his life. He's going to destroy our family. The, the seed of the woman is going to be destroyed. God's will is going to be thwarted. And so what does she do? She's controlled by fear. And so she begins to sin. She begins to enact and to maneuver and all of these things. Esau, just like his dad is controlled by his appetites as well. He sees these two women, he wants them, he marries them. They wreak havoc on, on his relationship with his parents, especially with his mother. Jacob is controlled by his wits. Jacob is, is such a conniving person. And as I said, I, I'm not sure that most of us would really love to spend some time with Jacob at this point 
in his life. Thank God that all of us grow through these periods of our life. My freshman year in high school was not a good time to know me, right? You, you, that, that wouldn't have been a great time. Maybe now you're thinking the same thing, but I seem to think you might like to hang out with me, but, uh, but Jacob especially. Jacob is a guy that, that I'm not sure that people really like. He's the guy in the movie that everybody hates. He's the guy that everybody hates, that nobody, that they just want this guy to die. Right? He outwits others. He outwits his brother, not once, but twice. The first time, he just takes advantage of his brother and says, oh, you're hungry? Esau is coming in from the field. And he's so hungry, he's famished, that he's, he needs some food right now. And Esau is so overwhelmed with the fact that he needs food that he's willing to despise his birthright, it says in the scriptures. He despises what is rightfully his. And in that, he's despising even the Lord. And Jacob takes advantage of this deep hunger that Esau has. But Esau's driven by his appetites, and Jacob is right there willing and waiting and able to take advantage of that guy. And he does. And he takes his birthright. But then in this, in this circumstance, he listens to his mom and says, oh, that's a great idea. Why don't I go ahead and do that? And so he uses his wits to gain the ascendancy in his relationships. He manipulates through this. I don't know if you're thinking about your own family right now. If you think about the different types of people that are in our home, it wouldn't be good to call mom Rebecca today or anything like that or, or say, oh, you're my Esau or something like that. It's just, that's just not good. But when you think about all of the things that these people have, the issues that they have going on in their life, the reason why there's sin in their life, they're driven by this fear. There's this fear of something, a fear of a lack of comfort or a deep love that goes above and beyond really loving God, especially like Isaac. Even though he knows the word of God, he's thwarting the word of God. In fact, many commentators really focus in on this part and say that Isaac, as the head of the household, is basically just working against God. Every single one of these people is sinful. And men and women, you got to know this. All of us are sinful. All of us are sinful. See, Jacob and Esau represent believer and non-believer. In fact, uh, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob represent the believers. Esau represents the non-believers. But what the story shows us is, is this, is that the, the believers are just as sinful as the non-believers. The believers have just as much potential of creating dysfunctional families as the non-believers. I was talking to somebody from a different religion just recently. They're a good friend of mine. They are good friends of mine, I should say. And we were talking uh, a ton about the gospel and about what it means to come to Jesus and so I, I have asked them before, and I asked them again, what, how do I come to God? How do I have relationship with him? And ultimately what they said is that I'm a good person. And when people look at me, they're going to see that I live better than they do, and then they're going to want to follow God, and, so and, and that God is going to accept me over them. And I tried to explain to them, don't you see that this is where pride comes from? Because you believe that somehow you're perfect. And in fact, in the midst of the conversation with them, even though they're from another religion, it's very close to Christianity, close, but 
absolutely not close enough. I heard in their voice the very same things, the very same beliefs that Christians have, which is this understanding and this, this, this belief that somehow my family's okay and we're not dysfunctional and I'm not messed up. And sometimes people from the outside, people who are not Christians, they look on the inside and they say, I can't come to God because my family will never be like that. My future family or my past family will ne was, was never like that. I don't have a whole family. That we didn't live in wholeness. We don't have anything good going on in our home. In fact, it's in disarray. We're divorced and we're this and we're that. But the truth is, is that when we act like these people and we say, you know what, we've got it all together, we deny an essential truth. And the essential truth is this, is that there's no one righteous. There's nobody who has this figured out. Believer and non-believer alike suffer from the very same things. Now, it doesn't mean that we should not be uh, in progressive sanctification, meaning progressively becoming more like Christ. But what it does mean is this, is that you and I have a responsibility to understand that we are not whole in and of ourselves. We are not perfect. And when we believe that we are, it causes us to fear and then try to control, which is the second point here. The illusion of control. The illusion of control. All of them have the illusion that somehow that they can control their life, that they can affect the direction of where things are going. And by the way, this is the message of our world. You are the hero of your own story, so they say. You are the one who leads your own life. You are the one who, who, who will set your life into the right direction. And to a degree or another, using God's wisdom, you can affect the direction of your life. But ultimately and finally, what they believe, what this family of four believes, is that they can control. And it is an illusion. It is an illusion that they can control. And men and women, it is an illusion that you can control, that you can make your kids obey Jesus, that you can make things go better in your life, that you, that you, that you, that you can make that different. And in fact, as long as you believe that you are in control, you're actually out of control. Your life is out of control. How do they try to control? Isaac certainly knows that this is an unpopular decision to go ahead and bless Esau. Think about this for a minute. This is the patriarch of a major home. And what, and what does he tell Esau? He says, I'm going to give you my blessing. I don't know when I'm going to die. It's the passing of the torch. It's the granting of the inheritance. Now, the birthright and the blessing seem very closely related. In fact, some commentators talk about them as though they're the same thing. So Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And in this instance, he may be, even though he made a commitment basically undermining that decision, that commitment that he had given to Jacob. That's a possibility. But I think it's also true that Jacob knows about that. Jacob knows this. 
Jacob knows that that happened out in the field that day. And that Esau had sold his birthright for a bowl of stew in the midst of all of that foolishness. But the second thing that Isaac knows is this, is that Isaac knows that God had given this oracle. God had said, the older will serve the younger. God had already spoken in this. But Isaac, being driven by his appetites, seeks to control this. And instead of having a major family celebration, instead of having this major feast, passing the torch, handing over the inheritance to the firstborn son, he does it privately. He whispers to him, hey, go kill something awesome, smoke it for me, and then bring it back, and I'm going to bless you, okay? But the problem is they live in a tent, and Rebecca is mom, and she's got ears. And she's like, oh, no, you didn't. Like, I'm, this is not happening on my watch. So Isaac is trying to control by telling him privately and trying to make this happen. But Rebecca also is trying to control. She believes that God has spoken and now she must work to create the outcome that God desires. God hath spoken to me. And so therefore, I am going to go do God's will for him. Rebecca believes that she needs to help God. She has this illusion that somehow that she is equal with God. Ladies and gentlemen, remember Genesis chapter 3. What Satan says to the woman is this. No, you will not surely die. God knows that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is rivaling God. It's saying you can be equal with God. And Rebecca, even in the midst, even in the midst of her very good intentions, because Esau is a punk, even in the midst of her very good intentions to see the will of God take place in her life, decides that she is going to try to control things. She is going to try to make this happen. And ladies, I don't know how you feel, but it can take place. It can happen. There's a desire to not be humiliated by your children. There's a desire, my wife said last night, to not be shamed. There's this, there's this desire that's driving us at times. And, it's, and it drives us so hard that instead of being dependent on God, we are dependent on us being in control of the situation. I've got to control this situation so that my kids do this, so that I have the insta-perfect family, so that my kids get into college, so that I won't be embarrassed at this dinner party, so that people at church will think that whatever. See, Rebecca is driven by a desire, <clears throat> I think, to, con to, to help God, to honor God with her family, but she does it in a sinful way with the illusion of control. She believes that she's in control. And that is where she gets off. That's where she gets off track. Esau believes that, he can, he, that he's got the world by the tail. 
He's a good-looking dude. He's a hunter. He's not going to fail. He believes. So he survives and thrives by his appetites. He's very much like his father. He's taken that on. He has the illusion of, I have the world by the tail. I have personality. I have good looks. I got two haughty Canaanite women. And so here is Esau, who also has the illusion of control. But then Jacob, like his mom, believes that he must manipulate in order to survive. Jacob gets by on manipulation. Esau gets by on personality. Jacob gets by on manipulation, cheating people out of things. So all of these people, this entire family, live under the delusion and the illusion of control. And let me just tell you, you and I are in the same position. As long as you believe that you are in control, you're actually out of control. As long as you believe that you can make this happen, guess what? God, in his great mercy, will allow... <clears throat> will allow dysfunction in your home. At times, God allows disaster in our homes in order to purge us of the illusion of control. I was telling a church planner friend of mine just recently that sometimes I believe God allows us to go through great difficulty in our churches. And, and he allows it to be there for as long as it needs to be there in order to purge us of the thought that somehow we're in control of the church that we get to lead under Jesus' headship. God allows us to be under these uh, under this, this great suffering, under this great dysfunction in order to purge us of the desire where we finally say, all I have is Christ. All I have is him. I, I cannot make this on my own. I, I don't have, I don't have the ability to make my kids well. I don't have the ability to make my husband be the guy that I want him to be. I don't have what it takes. All I have is Christ. And hallelujah. See, God in his great mercy purges us of the illusion of control. He purges us of thinking that somehow I can affect change. Now, this does not release us from acting morally. What it releases us from is the idea that somehow we can direct the events of our life and the direction of our kids and all of that. All I have is Christ. Are you able to say that? Because here's the thing, it's not just a one and done thing. It's not just, all I have is Christ today. I learned that, I'm going to go on. See, God is so incredibly gracious because he allows us to go around 
and around and around. He allows us to have to go through this difficulty over and over again. And if you're growing as a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the things that you begin to realize is you begin to realize God's amazing grace that's found in amazing tragedy. God's amazing, amazing mercy that comes through all the difficulties that we face, all of, the, all of the things that are happening in our life. And instead of trying to maneuver and manipulate and control in our homes, instead of thinking that somehow we have got this fixed, God purges us of that. Lastly is this. It's kind of depressing. Your life is kind of dysfunctional because God has allowed it. Happy Mother's Day, right? <laughs> but you kind of knew when you came to Outward you weren't going to get a soft message, so it's your own fault. So, uh, sort of. Maybe you're new here. Hi, I'm Matt. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, there is relief in redemption. The relief comes in this. See, you may or may not be able to see yourself or your family in this crazy story, but know this, that God's will cannot be thwarted. God's will cannot be changed. No matter how many times you've screwed this up, some of you are like, oh, I've done that. I've tried to manipulate, I've tried to maneuver, I've tried to make things happen, tried to use my wits, I've been controlled by my appetites, I've been a passive father. Guess what? God's will still remains. He is still sovereign in spite of your illusion of control, in spite of the fact that you are totally depraved and sinful, meaning you have the capacity to sin in great ways just like I do. Doesn't mean you act on all of those. God is still sovereign, even in the midst of your desires to try to change things and manipulate and make things different. God's will doesn't change. You can't change it. So you can look at this, at this story and you can say, wow, that's really messed up. That's really dysfunctional. I'm not sure what I think about this, this family that Jesus is coming from. Or you might look at it and you say, you think that's something? You ought to see my family. I don't know where you're at. But the story is put there so that you and I could see something. And that, is, and that is this. Whether you know it or not, dysfunction is coming. It's a part of you. By the way, we're all trying to raise our kids perfectly. But here's the thing. All of us in this room need counseling. You need counseling. I promise you. I promise you. If we were to get into it, yes, yes. You a counselor? Yeah, do you get a business card? No. Okay, no. Okay, all right. <laughs> No, no. All of us in this room need counseling. We could have a conversation. We could talk about something. And there's some amazing hurt in your life. There's something that's happened in you over the years. Something that's happened to you. All of us need counseling in this room. And guess what? All of our kids are going to need counseling. Just know that. But here's the thing. God's will cannot be thwarted. The relief of redemption is this, is that God is the one who, who affects redemption. He takes dysfunctional families. He takes broken families, and he makes them whole by bringing them into a new family. God is the one who does this. Ultimately, our hope cannot be in the perfection of our family. 
or in the happy ending that we've always dreamt of. Our hope must only be in the God of perfection who creates a family. My hope cannot be in my ability to not be a passive father, but to be an active father and to lead my sons and daughters to Jesus. My hope cannot be in that. It's got to be in the God of that hope. And when my kids see that, there's the potential, but not the promise. There's the potential that my kids will walk with Jesus. There's the potential, the probability, if you will, that that will take place. See, it's only in the midst of brokenness. It's only in the midst of realizing my sin. It's only in the midst of the fact that I have lived under this illusion of control that we can find the true fix. It's only in the midst of of realizing how busted up I actually am. And God is gracious when he shows you this, as I've already said. See, disaster and dysfunction, when they're finally exposed for what they are, have the unusual benefit of helping us find the very thing that we need. See, when disaster and dysfunction comes, it all of a sudden sends you off of this cliff that says, oh my gosh, I have nothing left. I can't affect change on my own. I can't make it happen. I can't can't call things into existence like God does. I am helpless. See, the relief of redemption is this, is that when I realize how incredibly screwed up I am, see, this is the way that you come to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus saying, you know, God, I'm a pretty good person. I've kept my family together. I haven't cheated on my wife or my husband. I, you know, I've got these nice kids and they wear khakis and, you know, weird shirts and stuff like that. And they're all homeschooled and stuff like that. Sorry to the homeschoolers, Ryan, our lead worship pastor here. So, but they're all very nice kids. My kids like his kids. But in, in, in any case, we don't come to God. I don't even know why I went off on that. But we don't come to God saying, like, hey, God, I've got things fixed up. I've got it worked out. I've got, I've got this thing figured out. We don't. It's when we come to the point of confession, when we come to God and we realize our sinfulness. You cannot come to God without first realizing that you are so sinful that God had to die for you. Men and women, saying that you like Jesus, saying that you're okay with church, saying something like that does not save you. If you've never come to the conclusion that I was so sinful that God had to die for me, then you, you don't have a prayer. You don't have a hope. You're lost. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, it says in Ephesians. God wakes us up from this, and he wakes us up from a stupor, from the illusion of control, from the belief that somehow I have life figured out. He wakes us up from it, and he allows us to see our sinfulness. Oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God has moved on your heart in that way, that you would have seen how sinful you are. the, The beginning of the gospel is, I am lost. I need a Savior. I am totally without hope, and I need God in my life through Jesus Christ. 
But then the second thing is this, is that you have to see Jesus as the one who, even though you were so bad that he had to die for you, you are so loved that he was glad to die for you. I think someone else has said that. It's not my quote. You're so loved by God that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You're, you were without hope. You deserve everything that, you're, that, you, that you got. And yet Jesus is glad to die for you. Jesus goes to the cross for you. And unlike Jacob, who puts on flesh to manipulate, Jesus puts on flesh in order to love. Jesus puts on flesh. He, he takes on humanity. He puts on flesh and he goes to the cross not to manipulate you into believing in him. Not to somehow stick the knife in and say, see what I had to do for you? No. He says, I love you this much. I love you this much. And the relief of redemption comes in this. He loves me anyways. Even though I'm so sinful, even though I try to control all the time. He loves me anyways. Yeah. It's amazing. It's glorious. And if you don't receive it, you don't have a prayer. You must receive Jesus Christ as Savior, but it must begin with the realization that, you're, that you are beyond saving yourself. Every one of us is. We must have Jesus as our Savior who put on flesh, not to manipulate, but to love. Ephesians 2.19 says this. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer people who are disconnected from God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See, here's the beauty of the gospel. When Jesus goes to the cross, what he's doing, he's fulfilling what he had always said. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's the fulfillment of that. And what does he do? He takes people in broken families. He takes you in the midst of your brokenness. Everything that happened to you in your family of origin. Everything that perhaps you've caused or that you're going to cause. Everything that, that your life might feel like a disaster. You might be a, a single mom who's sitting here and said, I had a punk husband. He did this. He did that. What, whatever. You might be somebody who's just left in dysfunction. And guess what? Jesus died not to just save you, but to bring you into the household of God. You have a new family. You're a part of his family. You're no longer by yourself. Look at your brothers and your sisters. Look at the people who love you. This is Jesus' church. And by the way, it's a good reason to be plugged in and to know others here so that you can be loved and known and know other people. Because... The, the gospel isn't just to get you saved and then send you on your way. No, the gospel is bringing you into the household of faith, the household of God. He brings you into his family. You have a new family. You are no longer on your own. Ladies, can I leave you with something? Jesus died so that you can resist the temptation 
to be so committed to the idea of the perfect family that you end up maneuvering, manipulating, trying to control. Jesus died for that. Confess it to your kids, to your husband perhaps, and walk in the, in the truth that you're a part of his family. Understand that. And then lastly is this. Trust God for the outcome. Do you see from Genesis 3 that family was so dysfunctional? It led to all kinds of dysfunction. All through thousands upon thousands of years. And yet Jesus has brought it all to fulfillment in Jesus Christ and ultimately will bring it to the end. Trust God for the outcome. He's proven he can handle it. He's the greatest counselor that ever was or will be. Trust him for the outcome that he will be glorified even in the midst of your dysfunction, even in the midst of your past sin, even in the midst of everything that's happened to you. Trust God for the outcome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't know how many folks we have in this room right now that are suffering under the weight of dysfunction. Lord, may they see the hope of you through the cross. Lord, may they experience the wholeness that you bring in and through your church family, the body of Christ. Lord, may they see the hope of the gospel this morning. Lord, for those women that are just suffering because of the wasted years, because of whatever it was that happened to them, or even the things that they have done, Lord, bring them to a place of deep reconciliation with, with you so that they can abide in your hope, abide in you, that they can live in fullness in the reality that you are such an amazing God. You are the only God who is eternal. And so, Lord, we trust you. And I pray that you'd lead us to walk with you to drop the illusion of control and to live with the relief, the great relief of your redemption. We don't have to control. It's in your name we pray, amen.